This is your host, Dr. Jordan Silverstein, and you're listening to the Let's Talk Cancer podcast, where we make information about cancer easy to access for patients and their families. But please remember, the information presented here is for education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. To maintain privacy, identifying details about patients have been changed for this podcast. Today, we will be talking to Lauren Shea about how to foster support during cancer treatments, specifically for patients who are single, divorced, or widowed. Lauren Shea is a social worker at City of Hope, where she works as a psychosocial program specialist in the Department of Supportive Care Medicine. Specifically, Lauren is developing and leading a psychosocial model of care for cancer patients that do not have significant others. She is also the team lead for, for the Women's Cancer clinical social work team, where she is passionate about helping patients with women's cancers get the most out of their medical care. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So do you think you could start by giving us a little bit of background of really how you got into this type of work? So, you know, it actually started back when um, I was a senior in college. And as you probably know, and people that are listening, when you're a senior in college, you think to yourself, Whew, okay, my education is ending here. And what's next? What do I want to study? I know I'm passionate about healthcare, maybe nursing, public health. I'm not exactly sure. Um, and during this time, I, it was my first few months of my senior year of college, I felt a lump in my neck. And I was like, you know, this is probably isn't anything, not too worried about it. My mom being the nurse that she is was like, Lauren, go to the doctor. And I'm like, what? I'm 20 years old. It can't be anything, right? Um, so I go to the doctor and I actually find out that I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, mm -hmm. I had an amazing medical team. And throughout this process of having six months of chemo, losing my hair, trying to be a student at the same time, I learned about the wonderful discipline of supportive care and supportive care medicine. And I interacted with a lot of different disciplines during my own treatment, which really inspired me to pursue a career and get my master's in public health and social work and lead programs for cancer patients. So that's what brought me here today. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I know for listeners, it must be really helpful to hear from someone who's really gone through something similar. Um, so do you mind diving into the type of supportive services that you're talking about? What are the different types of services that patients with cancer can access? I love this question because there's so many, and I feel like sometimes it's not really talked about. So to give an overview, supportive care is whole person care. It's showing a patient that they are so much more than just their cancer and that their care team sees them as a whole person. Um, according to the National Cancer Institute, supportive care is given to improve the quality of life of people who have cancer. And this can include physical, psychological, social, and spiritual support for patients and their families. So specifically, these services can be child life specialists who can talk to children who are diagnosed or the children of um, the adult who's diagnosed about what's going on with mom and dad. We have care navigation, psychological and spiritual counseling, clinical social work, 
positive, we at City of Hope, we have a positive image center, which is where oncology trained licensed cosmetologists can actually talk to patients about the visible side effects of cancer for both men and women and walk them through that process. We also have integrative care medicine um, and also integrative medicine such as yoga and meditation classes. So it's really just taking a step back and looking at patients as a whole. Um, and all of these services focus on maximizing patient and family strengths, their quality of life, and ability to best engage in their treatment journey and beyond. So what does it even look like post-treatment and in survivorship? So you listed a whole bunch of supportive care services, and you talked about how supportive care is really whole person care that not only treats the cancer, but also the quality of life of the person who has cancer. And some of the supportive care services you talked about are child life specialists, social workers, psychologists. Um, one new one that I hadn't heard of was this positive image center cosmetologist that can help walk through some of the visual side effects uh, of cancer. Um, I can imagine that a lot of these have different benefits for patients, but can you really speak to what the benefits are of having these supportive care services during cancer? Definitely. You know, I think one of City of Hope's early leaders, his name was Samuel Gulter. He said it best, and we actually have it on a door in our garden. And it says, there is no profit in curing the body if in the process we destroy the soul. So it's really showing that we really do care about patients as a whole person. And I can speak to specifically my department, the Department of Supportive Care Medicine and the benefits that we hope to see in our patients. You know, we can help patients find strength, meaning and even hope in their cancer experience by really getting down to their level and listening to their values we can help them identify what are these values? You become a patient and you're kind of like, wait, what do I value as a patient? I can give you an example. You know, I spoke to a new patient who was recently diagnosed with breast cancer just a few weeks ago. And she was talking to me and she's like, Lauren, I'm a grandma. I'm a volunteer in my community. And I want to travel. Like, I just want to really focus on my quality of life rather than my quantity of life. And so I was able to bring this to the supportive care team, our palliative team, spiritual care. And we were able to talk to the oncologist of the values of this patient and create a treatment plan that really reflected her values. So I think that's a huge benefit is just even enhanced communication with the medical team and another huge benefit of supportive care is just providing education and support for life during our patient's illness and then also beyond. Um, we want our patients to achieve a sense of wellness that they feel comfortable with even during their illness. And how do patients find you? Is this there a specific way a patient can get a referral to see you? few different ways. I think the easiest way for anyone, any listeners, is just to ask their oncologist, their primary care provider, 
hey, do you guys have any supportive care resources here? And how can I get connected to them? Because usually the oncologist would be the one to be able to set that referral. Um, I know at City of Hope, we really believe in proactive rather than reactive medicine. And so that is something that we're doing in my program is I meet with patients who do not have a partner. So they're either single, widowed, separated, um, before they even meet their doctor. And I talk to them about supportive care. I talk to them about coping. I talk to them about communicating with their loved ones. And I'm really able to provide a doctor, the doctor a full picture of these patients and also say, you know, they're really interested in child life specialists. Let's put that referral in now. So depending on where the listener is going to their hospital, they may have a more proactive approach or they may have to advocate for themselves and ask the oncologist directly. Uh, quick follow-up. Is, is it a social work referral or is it a specific referral to supportive services? As a future oncologist, I just don't know exactly what referral I would put in myself. So every hospital works differently, but I think the best first step would be social worker. And when people ask me what I do as a social worker, I always pause because in my first my first thought is like, we do so much and it's great. Uh But how I explain it is I wear a lot of different hats in the hospital. And one of my bigger hats is a connector. So as a clinical social worker, I really understand the system, the, the system of at least my hospital city of hope, but also the community, um, what national organizations there are and what type of supportive care services are in the hospital. So I think that would be great is to just send a referral to social work first, and then they can make recommendations. So back to what you said before, um, you talked specifically about patients who are single, widowed, divorced, or maybe early on in a relationship. What types of supportive services do you commonly talk to these types of patients about? Yes. So this is my passion. I'm specifically leading and developing a women's cancers program focused on the psychosocial needs of patients who do not have a partner. So like I said, they're single, divorced, widowed, or separated. And this is in partnership with Dr. Joan Mortimer, who is the director of the Women's Cancers Program. And what we really want to do is making sure that we see in the research that relationships matter. And we find that patients who do not have a partner may be at higher risk for psychiatric symptoms or worse medical outcomes. And so this is a really good question that you're asking is what's the most common support they seek and what I find because they may not have this built in support of a partner that they ask about transportation. So I had a patient who is currently in treatment for cervical cancer and her husband recently died, which is so incredibly sad on its own. And so when we talked, I was able to provide brief support, but also she was like, you know, Lauren, I'm really sad about my husband passing away, but also he was the person driving me to all my appointments and I can't drive. She was um, an older adult who um, was not able to drive. And so what we did was I encouraged her, I have a few steps and I'd love to share them, you know, call your health insurance to see if they can provide that transportation 
I provided resources on a community disability shuttle um, that a lot of communities have for those who are disabled. I encouraged her to activate her support system. She had some um, adult children in the area. Um, and then the last thing that she actually already knew about was it was called a go-go grandparent, which is an on-demand Uber. So for those who may not feel comfortable with technology, they just call a phone number and then someone just sets it all up for them. This is not a free service. I don't know how expensive it is, but I was like, that is so creative, especially for these patients that don't feel comfortable calling an Uber. And then another common um, support that they seek is caregiving. So some patients without a partner specifically have difficulty finding caregiving when they really need it, especially 24 seven care. They're like, how am I gonna find someone for 24 seven if I don't have this built-in support? So this is a really good opportunity for supportive care to jump in and the medical team and patient um, we can all partner together to figure out what's medically necessary for this patient and give the patient tools to activate their support system. So this is definitely another support they seek. And I have to say something, Jordan, because I do get questions about my single patients, but because I am from the strengths perspective, that's what I'm centered on. I do want to share that I have found patients who do not have a partner incredibly resilient and lean into mm -hmm. their adaptive skills of independence. So when going through cancer, sometimes it's not about having a romantic partner or not having a romantic partner. Sometimes it's just about the quality of the support system. Cause most of my patients who do not have a partner are incredibly resourceful. They're independent problem solvers and have support systems that are there. And they're like, how can I help? <laughs> so I also wanted to share that side too. Um, do you think you could talk a little bit more about the caregiving support and what types of support services are available to patients? So the one that I always make sure we address first, it's called in-home supportive services, which is a program paid by the state. And in order to apply to this program, you must have Medi-Cal um, and the state will pay someone. They'll do an assessment of you in the home and see how many hours per week they may need. And these would be activities of daily living, meaning going grocery shopping, driving you to your appointments. Um, and so this is a great option for a lot of my patients, though, that just need a few hours per week just to feel a little bit more settled. And my tip on this is that it can be someone you know. So it doesn't need to be a hired or a caregiver in the community and a stranger. If you have a family member that may be already doing these things or they need some extra income, it can actually be someone you know and they can sign up and receive this benefit from the state. Uh, In-home support services, also known as IHSS, is really a great resource for patients. And thank you for bringing that up because it's really empowering for patients to know that this exists and really ask for the support that they need. Um, other than caregiving and transportation resources for patients who are single, widowed, divorced, are there other types of supportive services they commonly seek? So, yes. So I think a big one 
And I share this because I'm sure your listeners are from all over the place, which is great. I think American Cancer Society is a great resource because they have a hotline and chat where you can speak to an information specialist. They'll take your zip code and they'll be able to really find that specific resource according to your community. And I also bring up American Cancer Society too, because I remember when I was first diagnosed, I was nervous to look online and Google things about Hodgkin's lymphoma and treatment and what would happen. And I promised myself in the beginning, and this was only true for me as a patient, every patient is different. That, you know, I only want to look at resources that are reputable, respected. And so American Cancer Society was actually a huge resource for me. Again, that was true for me. It may not be true for everyone, but for my own anxiety, that was super helpful. Another helpful resource that I learned more as a professional is the Cancer Support Community, which is a national organization that provides support groups, individual therapy, they provide financial assistance at time. Um, And I always encourage my patients, even if they don't live by one, to check it out because in the last few years with everything going virtual, they may be able to get plugged into a virtual support group. And then my last resource is to always call 211 which will give patients the ability to know what's going on locally around them. So this can this phone number can help you with getting help paying for your bills, finding food, like if you're just having some months where that you know your paycheck or your disability insurance is really going towards treatment or the different things being part of a pay, as as you are a patient, really lean on to your community resources. 211 can also help if we have any listeners that are experiencing housing instability. They can also help with um, housing resources or connect you to a local organization. Yeah. So I don't know what their specific title is, but they are a representative and you'll be able to. So, to be honest, I usually do this for the housing resource piece. And so when I've talked to a representative, in the past, I've said with the patient in the room, because I always like to partner with my patient, you know, my patient here is experiencing housing instability. And then they'll ask for the zip code, ask a few questions just to make sure we're figuring out what they're eligible for. And I, the last time I did this, they actually provided um, a motel voucher for a few nights. And so this is actually really helpful for a social worker who works in a comprehensive cancer center where I have people coming from like across states, across zip codes, and I may not know all the different resources in those communities, but I do know the resources that can help them in their local community. Wow, that's a really good to know that that hotline exists and patients can actually call for themselves. Yes. Great question. Yep. They just called 211. Uh, So I will link the American Cancer Society website and the cancer support community on my website, because I'm sure people will want to look at that um, after this episode. Um, But on a separate note, how do you think patients can best advocate for themselves to identify and really ask for what they need during their cancer treatment? 
This is a great question and is something that I actually talk about in our program specifically for those who do not have a partner and it's part of our psychoeducation script. So I'm going to specifically answer it for patients that need to advocate for themselves among their caregivers, right? And this can be a lot of different um, relationships. It can be adult children. It can be a hired caregiver. It can be a friend you haven't talked to in a few years, but now you're reconnected. It could be a stranger. And so what I always encourage my patients to do when they're in this situation of vulnerability and asking for help is it's okay to ask for help. You know, my patients share that they do not want to be a burden on their loved ones. And they usually find that this may be the first time in a long time that they're depending on others. And that can be really difficult for patients. So I remind patients that people want to help them and that when they ask, how can I help you? They mean it. And maybe some people don't, but if they ask that to really say, you know, what would be really helpful is if you brought me dinner in two weeks or once a month, you send me a funny video on YouTube. (laughs) Because what I find is consistency from, and maybe this is more towards caregivers now, but for caregivers, they also ask me, what can I do? What can I possibly do to support them? And I have found from my own story and from patients, it's all about consistency. When people first get diagnosed, you get, for some patients, you get texts and people reach out, but then a month goes by, six months go by. Sometimes patients are in treatment for years. And so as a loved one, I think that consistency of putting it in your calendar, like, hey, I'm just going to reach out um, every few months, I think is huge. So don't be afraid to ask for help. There are so many people, probably more than someone would even know, who really actually want to help you. Um, And it's really empowering for them to actually identify what your needs are and ask them specifically for help in those areas. And if I can add something to that, just a second. Um, I think something we talk about a lot in our program is being open and honest. Like it's okay to say, you know, this is really hard for me to ask you this because I'm so worried about being a burden but can you, can you do this for me? Because we don't need to be strong all the time. We all don't need to feel like we know what we're doing. Cancer is incredibly difficult. And so something I encourage my patients to do is write a list of what's helpful versus what is not helpful because they may be at church and someone asks, how can I help? And then they, they freeze and they say, oh, everything's fine. I'm okay. But really um, empowering my patients to think, okay, when you're asked that, like what would actually be helpful in that situation? Maybe getting texts 10 times per day, not helpful. But maybe, like I said, getting a meal once in a while would be really helpful. So that is something that we talk about. So it sounds like it's really important to think about your community and mobilizing the support that you already have. That's probably more than you even think and really identifying how people in your community can be helpful. Um, Do you have an example um, of yourself 
of ways that you were able to seek support during your cancer treatment? Yeah. Um, so I was a young adult when I was diagnosed with cancer. And this is a really unique age to be diagnosed because you're not pediatrics. And I love pediatrics, but they have really cute floors with giraffes and elephants and fun colors and pediatrics. And I also wasn't an older adult. And so when I went to my treatments, I looked to my left and I looked to my right. And I was like, wow, I'm the youngest person here by generations. Does anyone know what I'm going through? Are there any other young adults going through this? It was a really unique time. I was trying to go to school. I was trying to be independent. Um, And so some supports that were really helpful for me, Jordan, were the... um, they call it the adolescents and young adults. So AYA resources. So I went to a conference, it's called stupid cancer. So you should definitely put that in a link. Um, because I went to their conference and met a lot of AYAs who had similar struggles as me. And we were able to talk about what does it look like to go for a job or how do we, do we talk about our diagnosis when you're dating? Do you not talk about your diagnosis when you're dating? And so it was really helpful to have really personalized resources through the AYA community. And something else that I loved was adventure therapy. And so I finished my treatment and I got connected to this resource called First Descents, which is specifically for AYAs with cancer. And I think I was only like a month out of treatment. I lost my hair. I lost a lot of weight. I did not feel strong. And I went whitewater kayaking and did like flips in the waves. It was amazing. amazing. (laughs) And it's incredibly safe for every patient. There's an instructor. And it was the first time where I thought to myself, like, I trust my body again. Like I haven't, I didn't realize how much like you can detach from your body and just try to get through treatment. And that was the first time was like, like, I feel it. I'm in my body. I'm whitewater kayaking. I'm adventuring. And I'm with all these cancer survivors slash people in treatment. Mm -hmm. So that was such a powerful experience and it's free first ascent is free and what's it called first oh yeah first the sense let me spell the second word d-e-s-c-e-n-t-s Thank you for sharing that. That's such a powerful story. I really can feel that moment when you're on that whitewater raft uh, and really just lots of emotions. Yes. <laughs> and if someone's interested, that's not a younger young adult. So it's 18 to 39 years old. If they're over that age, there's also a nonprofit called Epic Experience, which is also free. And um They have a similar adventure therapy, peer support um, in Colorado. So that's called Epic Experience. And just to end our episode, do you mind talking about a patient that you have been able to guide and support through their cancer treatment? 
So I'm going to use one that's fresh in mind because I just talked to her um, and I'm going to call her Miss Brown. How's that? So Miss Brown shared she was recently divorced and lives three hours away from the hospital. Um, and she called me in tears. It was our first time chatting and it was actually a referral from her surgeon because she had this life-saving surgery planned for next week and she was told she needed to come this week to go to a pre-op appointment before the surgery and she did not have a transportation plan she was in so much distress on this phone call and for me i always want to start where the patient is at and so we did some deep breathing together i made sure she felt listened to um and then we were really able to be in a place where we could start problem solving. And so what happened was for the transportation, we were really able to activate her community and kind of like what we just talked about, Ms. Brown shared, you know, Lauren, I have, I have given so much. I'm a, a mom, I'm a grandma, I've been a caregiver, I give, give, give. And I just had the hardest time asking for help. And so we were able to really explore and dig deep into those feelings of why she has a hard time asking for help. And we were able to create a transportation plan because um, she was really able to find the strength in herself to call a friend that she hasn't talked to in a while, but offered that, offered help and create that transportation plan. And if I could share a few more things about how supportive care really came through for this patient, and it can be, you know, as an oncologist or someone just reading a referral, you may just see transportation, but there's mm -hmm. so much more underneath the surface because it wasn't just transportation for Ms. Brown. It was, you know, she feels really anxious driving on the freeway. And this actually started happening um, post, uh, diagnosis. So she was diagnosed and then she was like, I have a lot of anxiety about driving and I just feel anxious in general. And my previous coping skills are not transferring over. So I was able to connect her to an oncology counselor who will speak to her in the next few weeks. And even in a brief intervention, I'm sure this anxiety is coming up in different ways throughout her treatment plan and also her activities of daily living. So, so I caught that and I was like, okay, let's connect you to an oncology counselor. And she also shared questions of, you know, why did this happen to me, Lauren? Or why would God make this happen to me? Which is really common for patients to have these existential questions. And what I did was I called spiritual care and I said, Hey, but she knows she's asking some really good questions and they have the training to really talk to patients about that. So they'll be able to call them her in the next few weeks too. Um, you know, what I found from Miss Brown, even in the last few days, and I think relates directly, I know it directs, it directly relates to supportive care and what we're talking about today, because Miss Brown is so much more than a patient who just needs a surgery or it's a transportation referral, right? It's, she's a Christian who's kind of struggling with her faith right now. Um, she's struggling with asking for help. 
she shared she's passionate about her garden and her children. Um, and so this is a really good example of our patients being so much more than their, can than their cancer and why supportive care directly impacts patients' experience in the hospital and even their medical outcomes, right? Like she was very close to canceling her surgery and because supportive care could address these different things that were really important to her, she could keep that surgery. Um, and so that's just one. Yeah. Wow. Such incredibly powerful work that you do with patients to really help support them through all the things that are cancer care, the journey that is cancer care. So thank you for all the work that you do for patients every day and for your time here on this podcast. Uh, any other last words that you want to leave with our listeners? Well, I know you just thanked me, but I have to say being a clinical social worker is an absolute joy and it's social work month. So if any listeners are a social worker or a child life specialist, I just want to wish them a happy social work and child life specialist month because they do such incredible work in the hospitals, in the community, so many different areas. So I guess that would be my last comment. Thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. And that's all for today on the Let's Talk Cancer podcast. Please follow us on Spotify and Instagram and pass it along to anyone you think would benefit from learning about cancer. And don't forget, tune in to our next episode.